When many people think of Africa, they visualize wide open spaces, incredible wildlife, and colorful, friendly people with vibrant cultures, costumes, and music. But we might also contemplate the tragedy of the African slave trade and the consequences of colonialism. What if I told you there was one powerful African kingdom in particular that, when they first came into contact with Europeans, voluntarily and enthusiastically transformed their entire civilization almost overnight, adopting the language, religion, fashion, and even feudal aristocratic customs of the Portuguese, establishing diplomatic embassies in Lisbon, Madrid, and even the Vatican training their own clergy and corresponding regularly with popes and monarchs across Europe, as well as participating in the political machinations of a post-Renaissance Europe at war with itself. Though their story ultimately was to come to a tragic end, it was full of political intrigue, Amazon warrior queens, and a quest for power that was integral to the history of the West particularly the Americas, which was inexorably linked to the kingdom's rise and fall. If you're just a little bit curious about this powerful, deeply Catholic kingdom in the darkest heart of Africa, then join us as we dive into the history of the Kingdom of Congo, its troubled relationship with Portugal, and its tragic role in the transatlantic slave trade, whose incredible heroes would go on to inspire generations of their descendants with stories of warrior queens and tales of the Brazilian black Spartacus and his renegade kingdom. Heroes and Legends Documentary Channel Not just the who, the what, the where, but also the why. Our story begins in the early 1400s. The Barbary pirates of North Africa had long been raiding the Mediterranean and Atlantic coasts of Europe, plundering towns and villages all the way to Ireland, in lightning raids with their fast galleys that, over the course of hundreds of years, had seen them take over a million slaves back to markets throughout their strongholds in the Maghreb. European monarchs had long been trying to neutralise them, unsuccessfully, and their star, for now, was still rising, to yet see its zenith in the powerful Ottoman forces headed by Heyrudin Barbarossa through the 16th century. But for now, young Portuguese Prince Henry, known to us today as the Navigator, the fourth son of King João I of Portugal, and an avid maritime scholar, was dreaming about striking back at the enemy by taking the fight to them on their own home turf. Now, there was a legend that had been propagated since the 12th century of a lost kingdom of Christians somewhere in the east, ruled by a mighty and wealthy king called Prester John, supposedly a descendant of one of the three magi who visited the newborn Christ in Bethlehem a thousand years before. This kingdom was thought originally to be located in India, what little the West knew about it at the time, 
based largely on apocryphal stories about the disciple Thomas founding a Christian enclave there. Indeed, as the crusader present in the Holy Land began to crumble under the onslaught of Islamic expansion, stories circulated of King Prester John sending word that he was on his way with a mighty army to relieve the besieged crusaders and help once again liberate Jerusalem for Christ. As we know, this relief force never materialised, yet stories continued to circulate for decades that he had nevertheless liberated Persia and was now on his way to take Baghdad. Muslim armies were indeed being crushed by a mighty king, but it was not the Christian Prester John, but rather Genghis Khan, who was now the scourge of the Islamic world. How did he get confused with Prester John? Well, it turns out that when our old mate Genghis was a vulnerable teenager, he had at one time been under the care of a foster father who just happened to be a Nestorian Christian Khan of the Kerite clan. The Kerites were a Turkic Central Asian tribe who had adopted Christianity in the 11th century. Nestorians were a heretical sect who believed in the dual nature of Christ, that is to say, they claimed he had both a human and a divine nature, which established church doctrine dismissed in favour of a single unified nature. Despite their condemnation, the church was hardly in a position to police the Mongol steppes, and so the sect flourished there for some time. Anyway, the Khan had promised his niece as a bride to the young Temujin, who in time would go on to become the Genghis Khan we all know and love. But the two eventually fell out, and the Khan reneged on his promise to present said bride to the expectant groom-to-be. Bad mistake. Within a couple of years, the intractable Christian Khan was singing soprano with the angels, and Genghis got his new missus after all. Somehow, these tales of a Christian Khan morphed into various confusing and unrelated stories woven by crusading knights in the Levant, with the legend of a mighty Christian Khan in the East gaining ever more traction. When it became obvious that the dread Mongol Khan was anything but Christian, rumours about the location of this exotic Prester John kingdom began to shift from Central Asia towards Saharan Africa instead, with various contenders such as Abyssinia and Ethiopia being considered as candidate homelands. At the time, these domains were thought to extend right across Saharan Africa and given the onslaught of Islamic expansion throughout the Mediterranean, southern European states in the firing line became ever more desperate to link up with this Christian king, sending spies and envoys into North Africa, hoping to make contact. Portugal was among the most active of these, and it seems that Henry the Navigator developed a particular obsession with the fantasy. At the age of 21, he convinced the king and his other brothers to attack the Barbary city of Ceuta on the Moroccan coast, which his agents had told him was a huge clearing market for slaves brought in both from their European raids 
as well as trade routes coming out of sub-Saharan Africa. Stories abounded of their incredible gold, ivory and slave hordes being brought north to the Mediterranean via caravans from the legendary Empire of Mali. So, by taking Ceuta, he was hoping they could tap into the network and maybe also use it to get their agents more easily to Prester John's kingdom. So it was that in August 1415, the Portuguese sent an expeditionary armada that, having just assembled in the Ceuta harbour, was scattered by a fierce storm, causing them to raise anchor and head back out to sea again before they could properly engage the well-entrenched Muslim defenders. The governor of the city, thinking that the enemy had abandoned their plans, dispersed his troops and conscripts, but when the fleet, having regrouped, returned a week or so later, he was now left with only a modest garrison, and the citadel was taken with little resistance, and has remained in European hands ever since. In the aftermath, the Marinid Sultan of Fez, over in Morocco, was assassinated for failing to defend the fortress, and the region then descended into civil war, as rival factions fought for control. This at least meant that Ceuta remained relatively unmolested for many years, giving it an opportunity to fortify and repel the modest attacks of local warlords. But Henry's hope for cashing in on the sub-Saharan trade network came to nothing, as the caravans simply redirected to Tangier instead, denying the prince the honeypot he was hoping for. So he convinced his brothers to have a crack at Tangier as well, but this city was an altogether different stronghold, the Portuguese attack ending in complete disaster. Nevertheless, for the time being, the European presence on the North African coast threw a spanner in the works, stifling Islamic raiding for some time and making shipping lanes through the Straits of Gibraltar much safer for European traffic. But Henry was going to have to find another way to get his hands on all that southern treasure. There was nothing for it but to try and sail around the other way and see how far they could go. He now began obsessively acquiring maps and charts, and some believe that he even developed a kind of naval academy that focused on improving navigation, chart-making and ship design, drawing from the innovations of both Muslim and Christian sailing traditions. He sponsored the exploration of the Atlantic Ocean in redesigned shallow-bottom caravel ships with Latin sails that were highly manoeuvrable and whose arrangement allowed them to sail into headwinds as well as enable them to hug the coast more closely. Portuguese sailors had by now discovered huge ocean air gyres and currents that actually made it more efficient, if counterintuitive, to sail way out to sea, perpendicular to the winds that we now call the northeasterly trades, and then ride the clockwise turn of the winds as they became the southwesterlies that would now be at their backs as they approached the Iberian coast once more. This turn of the breeze was known as the Volta do Mar, 
and it enabled the Portuguese navy to strike out with confidence across vast expanses of ocean and predict the likely wind direction based on their latitude. Using this revolutionary new knowledge, intrepid Portuguese explorers discovered the Madeiran Islands, the Azores and even the Sargasso Sea. Some evidence also suggests that by the 1420s, they probably also ran into the Caribbean and possibly even the mainland of both North and South America, such that Christopher Columbus had eventually availed himself of both maps and knowledge he extracted from dying Portuguese sailors on Madeira. See my video on the Codfish Heroes for a full account of this and other incredible stories of pre-Columbian crossings. Anyway, as confidence increased and the fog of obscurity gradually retreated, Prince Henry sponsored dozens of expeditions that penetrated ever further southwards too, passing the southern edge of the Sahara by 1444 and the Capo Verde Islands by the early 1450s, making contact with local chieftains and setting up a number of trading posts that bypassed the Muslim land caravans and dealt directly with sources of ivory, gold, and now also slaves. Gold began pouring into Lisbon, and the North African trading hubs of Algiers and Tunis found themselves devastated by the loss of trade via this new Portuguese Atlantic trade route, which bypassed the traditional desert crossings that had been used by Muslim merchants for centuries. By 1488, Bartolomeo Diaz had rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and the very next year, Vasco da Gama was the first European to sail to India via this new African route. From this point on, the Islamic world's grip on power would never be the same again, and Portugal would soon become a maritime superpower to be unrivaled for centuries. Now, a few years before Diaz's daring forays to the Cape, another Portuguese trailblazer by the name of Diogo Cao had also made his way south, hugging the African coast, and in 1483, he disembarked at a well-established and clearly powerful kingdom called Congo, whose domains extended over 100,000 square kilometres roughly covering northern Angola and the western portions of the Congo republics of today. Traditional history holds that the region surrounding the Congo River estuary was originally occupied by numerous minor kingdoms, but by the late 14th century, the balance of power began to shift when two of them, the Imbata and Impemba, formed an alliance and began expanding into neighbouring territories, annexing some and subjugating others into vassal dependencies. When these two kingdoms were ultimately merged through a royal marriage, the Kingdom of Congo was formally proclaimed in about 1375, with its capital at Imbanza Congo, in today's northern Angola. Subordinate vassal kingdoms were eventually absorbed as provinces of the Greater Congo, whose population at the time 
had reached three quarters of a million subjects. To give you some perspective, London, one of the largest cities in Europe at the time, had roughly 50,000 inhabitants, and with outbreaks of the Black Death, it occasionally dropped significantly below that. The highly centralised state of Congo had an extensive trade network all along the western seaboard, producing cloth, copper and iron goods, pottery, ivory, ornate jewellery, and was trading in gold and slaves captured as prisoners of war from their many wars of expansion. When Diogo Cao stepped ashore a century later, in 1483, they were warmly received by the ambitious king, Intinga Ankuwu, who had no doubt already received forewarning of the European arrival in the region by his extensive communication network. The king was keen to gain even more leverage over his rival neighbours by establishing friendly relations with the Europeans, treating them with great hospitality at his royal court. Diogo Cao soon returned to Lisbon, leaving a number of his lieutenants behind as tutors, while the king himself sent a delegation of his own nobles back with him, who spent the next couple of years in Portugal, establishing an embassy there and taking instruction in the language, religion and culture of the Portuguese court in return. In this mission, the ambitious and progressive African king also requested the Portuguese monarch to send architects, masons and scholars and to instruct them in European methods of warfare. So when the emissaries returned home in 1491, they were fluent in the language and were indeed accompanied by a swathe of Portuguese builders, priests and soldiers who were given quarters and even wages by the Congolese royal court. The king was so keen to transform his realm that he decided to be baptised, adopting a Christian name in honour of the current Portuguese king, João. His queen and many nobles soon followed suit, and they now instigated the building of churches across the entire country, even transforming the traditional organisation of Congo society along a feudal European model, with titles, rank and estates akin to those of Portugal. His courtiers adapted to the sweeping changes astonishingly quickly, with King João even sending an embassy to the Pope in Rome and requesting the pontiff to establish a completely new African bishopric centred in his capital. Their new friends, the Portuguese, were soon requested to assist the king in his military adventures, offering detachments of their troops and arquebusiers to help quell provincial insurrections and intercept raiders from neighbouring territories, sometimes taking many prisoners in the process, who were, by local custom, typically enslaved. Most of the captives purchased by the Portuguese at this time actually ended up in Lisbon, working on local estates which had been severely depopulated by both the plague and the Reconquista. Now, sugarcane was first cultivated in Southeast Asia over 8,000 years ago. It eventually made its way into the Indian subcontinent, 
and was then brought into the Mediterranean by Arab merchants in the 9th century AD. Muslim expansion into Cyprus, Crete, Sicily, and then the Iberian Peninsula brought it onto climactically suitable newly conquered territories, where its cultivation was practiced on large estates, worked by Turkic, Balkan, and Mediterranean slaves. Genoese and Venetian merchants described the practice in some detail, so that when the Portuguese opened their first sugar plantation on the island of Madeira in 1432, they simply copied Muslim plantation practices that had been going on for 600 years already. Once they and the Spanish began colonising the New World, they found conditions perfect for growing sugarcane here too so demand for a local cheap labour force increased significantly. When King João of Congo died in 1509, the realm descended for a short time into a period of civil war. You see, despite a feudal baronial system similar in many respects to that of the Europeans, the kingship of Congo was an elective, not hereditary title. So the ongoing support of the nobility for key candidates was necessary above and beyond claims of lineage and primogeniture, such that civil wars following the death of a king were a disruptive, though normal and recurring practice. Moreover, from time to time, rival factions would attempt to break off and ally their domains with others, often engaging mercenaries from outside territories and now increasingly Portuguese client adventurers who found themselves on the payroll of not only the sitting king, but frequently also his subordinate nobles. Portuguese diplomats had been granted a number of outposts from which to conduct their mercantile activities, with taxes, tolls and duties to be paid both to the regional warlords in whose domains they were located as well as to the king as head of state, who held the ultimate monopoly on local trade. So when the monarch came into conflict with his own barons, the Portuguese in the various settlements of Sao Tome, Principe and others on the mainland often found themselves being drafted in to fight on opposite sides. Some of these settlers indeed became so wealthy and so influential that they became key figures in the Congolese court, intermarrying with the local nobility and often holding social titles above that of the Portuguese officials that were dispatched to oversee the outposts. Such that the King of Portugal increasingly found himself subject to a flurry of complaint letters from his own merchants of those assimilated into the Congolese court as well as frequently from the Congolese king himself, all complaining about the encroachment on their rights and privileges to one degree or another, but all of them involved in a Machiavellian game of one-upmanship to secure power and trade benefits for themselves. The Portuguese crown was, more often than not, content to let them all fight it out amongst themselves, as long as trade continued to flow to Lisbon. After his death, King João's son Afonso nevertheless won out in the ensuing conflict and took over the reins of the kingdom in 1509, 
becoming an even more fervent missionary than his father, formally establishing Christianity as the state religion, maintaining a regular correspondence with the Pope and even sending his son Prince Enrique to Rome, who returned some years later to become the chief bishop of the burgeoning Congolese church. The royal court adopted the fashion, etiquette and customs of Europe, and one of its ambassadors in Lisbon even married into the Portuguese royal family. King Afonso instigated a vigorous program of building schools across his domains, training local teachers to become fluent in Latin, Portuguese and even Italian, and having Congolese converts undergo training as priests under the tutelage of both Portuguese and Vatican missionaries. He even commissioned a European-style coat of arms that would be used by all future rulers till the dissolution of the kingdom in the early 20th century. It's clear that both the king and the Portuguese officials who resided in his realm viewed their relationship to Europeans as one of equals. Their well-documented correspondence back home typically reflects their deference to him even when they were unhappy with their circumstances. While the Portuguese were busy establishing trade settlements up and down the coast of Africa, over on the other side of the Atlantic, the Spanish, whose maritime exploits were being left in the dust by their Lusitanian cousins, nevertheless pulled off a major coup when Christopher Columbus claimed the New World for Spain in 1492 thumbing his nose at the Portuguese court. The political chaos it triggered between Spain and the Portuguese, who had previously been given full title over the Atlantic Ocean by a papal decree, almost ended in war, but eventually resulted in a compromise in 1494, called the Treaty of Tordesillas, which gave the Spanish crown all lands roughly to the west of the 24th meridian while Portugal retained the rights to everything east of it. The poor old French, despite being Catholic, were completely sidelined by the Pope, as were the Protestant English, so they simply ignored the treaty altogether and scrambled to get a foothold wherever they could. When Pedro Alvarez Cabral landed a Portuguese exploration fleet off the coast of modern Brazil in 1500, he claimed it for the Portuguese crown, given that it lay within the Portuguese meridian of possession. The region quickly became an important source of timber and dye from a local tree known as Brazil wood. And it's from this tree that the modern country derives its name. By 1516, the Portuguese had established a number of trading ports along the Brazilian coast to export the timber and like their Spanish counterparts further north in the Caribbean, they largely depended on the labour of local indigenous people, who, at first, voluntarily aided the Europeans in exchange for axes, metal tools, and military support against rival clans. These Native Americans all practised tribal warfare, also enslaving their conquered neighbours. As the Portuguese began establishing permanent settlements on the Brazilian coast, 
Native raiding parties soon included European fortune hunters, called banderantes, who now claimed a proportion of the captured enemies for themselves as payment for their assistance. And these captives were then put to work on new Portuguese farms and sugar plantations. The banderantes developed a notorious reputation not only for their cruelty but also treachery for undermining the missionary work of groups like the Jesuits, whose indigenous congregations were often raided by them despite the protests of parish priests to the crown back home. Remember these scoundrels because we'll get back to them later. Of course, other Europeans were keen to get in on the action. And the French, who, as mentioned, were left out of the papal treaty altogether, ignored the papal mandate and sent out a number of expeditions of their own to parts of the Brazilian mainland, including Rio de Janeiro. But the Portuguese crown, paranoid about French adventurism, dispatched an armada to dislodge them and formalised possession of Brazil by establishing permanent settlements along the entire coast. These settlements rapidly transformed into sugar-producing factories, so many more slaves were needed than could easily and cheaply be acquired through raiding the dense forests of the Brazilian hinterland. In response, the Portuguese demand for captives back over in Congo, now their chief source of manpower, intensified substantially, which fueled Congo's foreign wars of expansion both to the north and the south. Portuguese captains now also occasionally conducted raids of their own, sometimes at the behest of local warlords and at other times completely on their own initiative. So many captives and cash began to flow into the capital, now renamed São Salvador, that the King of Congo wrote numerous letters to the Portuguese court complaining about maverick European merchants who were operating without due oversight or appropriate payment of export tariffs to his treasury. He had, after all, signed a treaty with Portugal guaranteeing that he had a personal monopoly on all slave trade passing out of his domains. And he even threatened to end the trade when increasing numbers of his own citizens, deeply in debt because of their demand for European goods, were occasionally seized by creditors and themselves sold into slavery to pay their debts. Historians generally agree that trade with the Europeans was hardly balanced and that the scales were usually tipped in the Portuguese favour, which made it common for locals to quickly fall into serious debt, where their cowrie shell currency was worthless. But the thing was that, technically speaking, the Congolese citizens were obliged to purchase their much-desired European goods only through the king's personal customs agents, and hence pay him import duty. But when, as people do, they eventually began to bypass his tax collectors and buy goods duty-free, he lost control of his own import revenue, while traders frequently sent in debt collectors to take care of business. Had the king managed to keep a tighter grip on imports, it might have stabilised his ballooning account deficit, but once people found themselves subject to creditors, 
Despite laws to the contrary, Congolese citizens regularly sold their own kin into slavery, especially during an economic crisis, to pay off their debts. And even the king himself was reported to have dealt with troublesome family members and rival candidates by, shall we say, having them sold down the river in ways reminiscent of the biblical Joseph and his technicolour dreamcoat. The same thing frequently happened in Europe and Asia also, especially among the poor. So this was hardly an unusual situation. Now, when King Afonso eventually died of old age in about 1543, he had been on the throne for over 50 years, and despite his regular letters of complaint to Lisbon, he had nevertheless profited enormously from the relationship, both through the trading of slaves and the expansion of his territory in the process, now with the help of Portuguese firepower. Indeed, it's estimated that between a third to half of the inhabitants of the Western Congo Basin were sold into slavery during the next century, far too many to have been the result of marauding Portuguese conquistadors. This is because European mercenaries in this part of Africa rarely ventured more than a few kilometres inland. The reason for this was the widespread presence of malaria and other endemic diseases, that were much less prevalent at the coast than they were upriver. Some historians have estimated that the average European survived less than six months in that environment, so they mostly relied on locals to do the dirty work of raiding outlying tribes. While the kingdom maintained a traditional cowrie shell currency for its own domestic trade, International business quickly came to be conducted in human currency, with the king paying tithes to the Bishop of Sao Tome in slaves, as indeed he did to other European and African states, who soon also adopted the practice. Despite this grim picture, subsequent Congolese kings would take the matter of citizens' rights somewhat more seriously, particularly when factional power changed hands with correspondence to Europe occasionally including petitions for a number of high-born slaves sold by the previous monarch to be repatriated from even as far away as Brazil. Portuguese and later Spanish royal court documents exist, showing a willingness and significant effort made to comply with these diplomatic requests. Afonso's son Pedro assumed the throne on his father's death, but he was soon overthrown in a coup led by his own nephew, who crowned himself Diogo I. The deposed Pedro fled to a local church, with the usurper fearing a backlash if he breached the church's strict rules of sanctuary. So seriously did they consider their Catholic vows. Instead, he isolated both Pedro's supporters and the Capuchin order that was loyal to him, soon replacing them with Jesuits. But when the Jesuit hierarchy complained about the propriety of his having so many wives, King Diogo booted them as well, and replaced the Jesuits in turn with Franciscans, who pretty much stayed out of his hair, and instead concentrated on missionary work in rural areas. Now, 
Don't get me wrong, King Diogo was no apostate. He was a firm advocate of Christian teachings and was widely regarded as quite the biblical scholar, expanding missionary activity even beyond Congo's own political borders. It's just that he saw no justification in the Gospels for the ridiculous idea of keeping only one wife. For a mighty ruler like himself, it just wasn't honourable. Only losers had one wife. Anyway, King Diogo's reign continued much like his grandfather's, with increasing incursions into neighbouring territories, assisted by contingents of heavily armoured Portuguese soldiers, as was by now usual, paid for their service in captive prisoners of war. His successor, Afonso II, was assassinated by rival conspirators, and when the next candidate, Bernardo I, ascended the throne, he met his end during an invasion by a powerful eastern neighbour, the Jagas, or Yakas, who, perhaps feeling threatened by Congo's expansionist agenda, launched a preemptive invasion and devastated much of the kingdom's agricultural lands, causing a famine and corresponding economic catastrophe. His successor, Enrique I, fared little better, and as neighbouring kingdoms began to feel increasingly threatened, cracks began to appear in the once mighty kingdom. The next monarch, Alvaro I, ascended the throne at this time of great crisis, even being forced to evacuate his capital, São Salvador, which was sacked by the invading Jagas. He desperately wrote to both the Portuguese king and the Vatican for support, for which King Sebastião I of Portugal sent 600 soldiers in support of Congo's defence, on condition that Congo not oppose the establishment of a new trading post south of the country at Luanda, which occurred in 1575, and would go on to become the capital of modern-day Angola. The Allied forces eventually overcame the invading Jagas, but a client state to Congo's south, which had long been lobbying for independence and had even sent emissaries to Lisbon to garner support, offered to become Christians if they were assisted in winning their freedom. Careful not to upset their ally in Congo, the Portuguese only dispatched a delegation of missionaries. But these efforts came to nothing, and when conflict inevitably arose as a result of a weakened post-war Congo, the Portuguese reinforced their allies and gained some territory for themselves from the now rebelling state of Indongo during the conflict. It was far from a cakewalk, however, and in a number of separate engagements, the Portuguese found themselves surrounded and thoroughly thrashed, as were their allies, with King Alvaro having to face the reality of Indongo's complete independence and eventually even ceding some territory to them. The situation remained a tense standoff, with none of the players able to take the initiative, until the Portuguese in 1617 managed to entice a nomadic group of marauding cannibal warriors known as the Imbangala to join their side, and together they penetrated deeper into Indongan territory 
along the Kwanzaa and Lukala rivers, cutting off Indongan supply lines and capturing its capital, taking thousands of prisoners and crippling the newly independent state. Now, you'd think King Alvaro would have been relieved at the victory, but this Portuguese use of initiative and their recruitment of African mercenaries without his consultation or consent didn't sit well with him, and the king's relationship with the Portuguese military commander subsequently became strained. The Congolese were concerned that all this independent diplomacy might eventually be used against them too. It didn't help matters when all these new Ndongan war captives were being shipped out of the new port in Luanda, totally bypassing Congolese customs officials and denying the king much-needed revenue he felt he was duly entitled to. But with his army depleted by the Ndongan rebellion, he was in no position to dictate terms to the Portuguese, who had now begun to fortify their southern outposts against both the Congolese and the remaining Ndongans. The latter were eventually forced to accept vassalage to Portugal when Queen Njinga, who was acting as regent for her nephew, had the boy king conveniently disposed of and then personally approached the Portuguese governor with a peace treaty of her own in 1621. Negotiations stalled, however, because she insisted on the release of a number of her own vassals, but the Portuguese governor feared doing so might lead to an insurrection, which occurred anyway, and war with the Ndonga, with Queen Njinga at its head, resumed in 1626. The Portuguese by now were well entrenched, and they easily defeated her forces, forcing her into exile and installing a puppet ruler in her stead. Congo, too, was now facing internal problems of its own, and when Alvaro I's son died, his son, Bernardo II, was soon deposed, and a civil war broke out once again among rival claimants. Queen Njinga raised another army two years later, and once again advanced on Portuguese positions, but yet again was defeated and fled to the neighbouring Kasanji province, where she humiliatingly submitted to marrying an Imbangala cannibal warlord, who, in return for his support, claimed her throne by right of marriage. The Imbangala, being stateless as well as cannibals, were treated with disdain by the more civilised kingdoms, but their highly militarised meritocratic hierarchy and Spartan-like focus on martial prowess made them feared as warriors, so Queen Njinga saw them as a useful vehicle to regain her own kingdom. Ingratiating herself into their sinister blood-drinking culture was the price she had to pay to achieve her ends. Now, all this was going on at a time when Portugal's own fortunes were far from stellar. You see, in 1580, it had become subject to the Iberian Union when young Portuguese King Sebastião was killed in the Battle of the Three Kings, or Alcácer Quibir, in 1578. If you recall, 
the Portuguese had in 1415 managed to wrest control of the small fortress of Ceuta from the Moroccan sultan on the North African coast. This victory was a hollow one, with little profit to be had from it, while successive devastating victories by Ottoman commanders, such as Barbarossa, discouraged them from any further eastward forays in the Mediterranean for the time being. Instead, they turned all their attention to the Atlantic west coast, gradually making their way south, probing for Muslim weaknesses that would afford them a continental foothold and opportunities to again access the trans-Saharan trade caravans. Eventually, they managed to subjugate the coastal ports of Ksar el-Segir, in 1458, Asila and Tangier in 1471, Azimur in 1486 and Safi in 1488, and thereby virtually blockading all of Morocco's maritime trade. Things were looking shaky for the Berber-Watassid dynasty ruling out of Fez, and when in 1505, the Portuguese managed to conquer the Atlantic coastal fortress of Agadir, adjacent to the Canary Islands, a political crisis blew up in response. You see, much of the southern part of the country was governed by an Arab Saadi Sharifi dynasty that traced its lineage right back to the Prophet himself. And though nominally vassals of the Berber Sultan in the north, they took upon themselves the holy task of expelling the infidels from their ancestral lands. But in reality, they ended up having more success only displacing the current Watassid sultan, who was increasingly being viewed as incompetent, such that by 1550, they had occupied most of the country's major interior cities and forced the abdication of its current sultan. The Portuguese saw the writing on the wall and evacuated the northern ports of Xares Seguir and Asila before the new ruler, Muhammad al-Sheikh, or the Ottomans dislodged them. It should be said, though, that there was no love lost between this new sultan and the encroaching Ottomans, who had absorbed pretty much the entire North African coast into their expanding empire. The Turks keen to tie up this loose end, approached the Moroccans and demanded their submission. But the new sultan, a proper old-school Muslim, was having none of it, and so Muhammad al-Sheikh and Suleiman the Magnificent now found themselves in a Mexican, or should I say Maghrebian, standoff. Battles raged across the entire country, cities fell and were retaken again, as the Moroccans fought tooth and nail against both the Ottomans and factions of the preceding dynasty. In yet another shining example of the Machiavellian nature of international religious politics that my viewers have come to expect, the beleaguered Moroccan leadership now reached out to the Spanish, who were themselves currently under siege by the Ottomans and hanging on to the port city of Oran by the skin of their teeth. The jihad would be put on indefinite hold if the Spanish would send troops to help them in their resistance to the Ottoman onslaught in Morocco. Never was the adage, my enemy's enemy is my friend, more aptly applied, 
as the Spanish nervously agreed to the deal. But as Ottoman pressure mounted, the beleaguered Moroccan leader was assassinated by one of his own bodyguards, and the Ottomans went on the offensive, pushing ever deeper into Morocco's heartlands, and now appointing the dead leader's more, shall we say, compliant relative as a vassal governor, bypassing the dead sultan's son and rightful heir. A flurry of correspondence was now sent across the Straits of Gibraltar, with the denied heir making overtures to both the English and French kings to support him against both the Ottomans and his new ally Spain. Yes, you heard that right. Confused? Sure you are. But wait, there's more. The newly installed puppet sultan, Abd al-Malik, who had replaced his brother, the rightful heir, and was basically just an Ottoman shill, was nervous about falling out of favour with the big boys in Istanbul. So he now also instigated correspondence with Queen Elizabeth over in Old Blighty, not forgetting to write to King Henry III over in France as well, hoping that they might assist him, whether it be against the Ottomans or the Spanish in any event. What the French and English must have thought about these two rival factions, both lobbying for support against their own supposed allies, can only make you wonder. The dispossessed claimant soon also unfortunately died, and his son, Abu Abdallah Muhammad II, who was on the anti-Ottoman side of the family, felt so aggrieved by his uncle's ongoing betrayal that he now also secretly corresponded with Portugal's king, Sebastião, because, well, there was no love lost between the Portuguese and the Spanish, and all things considered, they seemed like a good horse to bet on at the time, despite having occupied and crippled all of his country's seaports. Now, young King Sebastião had spent much of his youth under the tutelage of Jesuits, and remnant Knights Templar, who had found refuge in Portugal, after being exterminated pretty much everywhere else in Europe. And it seems these holy warriors inculcated a deep desire in him to go on a crusade. But even he was not so naive as to think he could liberate the Holy Land, so taking a crack at Fez seemed as good an opportunity to prove his Christian valour as anywhere else. Now, with this petition from the dispossessed wannabe sultan, Sebastião effectively had a pretext, as well as local support, to invade Morocco properly. Consequently, he advertised his potential campaign as a legitimate crusade, with fools and adventurers all across Europe making their way to join him. The army, on its way to link up with Abdallah Muhammad's own forces, eventually swelled to an impressive 23,000 troops. Comprised of the flower of the Portuguese nobility, several thousand Castilian volunteers, 3,000 Flemish and German mercenaries, 600 Italians and a battalion of over 40 cannons, transferred to North Morocco by 500 ships. They had no sooner landed than the impetuous young king and his desperate Moroccan ally headed boldly for the capital, 
without properly accessing their existing resources and network, and were soon intercepted by a much larger force of 60,000 troops that had been substantially reinforced by elite Ottoman janissaries, cavalry and artillery. The quasi-crusaders soon found themselves completely outflanked in the open by a much larger army, and in the desperate fighting that followed, all three of the leaders perished, hence the name, Battle of the Three Kings, in 1578. By the end of the day's fighting, almost all of Portugal's noblemen were dead and the ransom of the few that remained alive almost bankrupted the treasury. It was the single biggest military disaster in Portugal's history, while the loss of the childless young king now led to a succession crisis that saw Philip II of Spain, Sebastião's Habsburg uncle, make a direct claim for the Portuguese crown, which he backed up with an army of 40,000 troops that occupied the country in 1580 and crushed the modest opposition that could be mustered against him. Portugal was now forced into an uneasy personal union with Spain, and though much of their bureaucracy remained separate, the Lusitanian kingdom suffered the loss of much of its colonial revenue to Madrid, as well as becoming an unwilling party to all of Spain's current wars particularly against the English, the French and the Dutch, who proceeded to attack Portuguese colonial holdings with unrestrained gusto. You see, when Spain took control of Portugal, they immediately shut off access to the Lisbon spice market that was, by now, bringing in huge amounts of spices from Portuguese holdings in India and the Asian-Pacific market. Now, if there's one thing the Dutch love more than tulips and windmills, it's cloves. So this trade embargo encouraged Dutch merchants to establish maritime trading companies of their own, such as the Dutch East India Company, which would go on to challenge Portuguese and Spanish control of the high seas and turn it into the first global corporate superpower. One by one, Portuguese trade concessions began to fall to the Dutch. Formosa, Ceylon, Malacca, the Philippines, Japan, almost the entirety of their African outposts, and for a short time in the early 1620s, even their Brazilian holdings, with the newly formed Dutch West India Company taking possession of lucrative sugar plantations in the New World. Despite the machinations of Portuguese adventurers in the Congo, they just lacked the manpower to fend off other marauding European powers. And the Dutch especially posed a threat in central West Africa, such that by 1637 they had taken the lucrative gold hub of Elmina, as well as the rich sugar plantations of Sao Tome and Principe in 1642 but we're getting just a little ahead of ourselves. Despite this global catastrophe for the Portuguese, the now well-established Angolan fortress at Luanda began sending out raiding parties northwards 
into border states that were nominally vassals of the Kingdom of Congo. Despite their standing alliance, the Portuguese governor nevertheless attacked these estates and the dukes that owned them on the pretext of their harbouring escaped slaves. This diplomatic insult meant that the King of Congo, Alvaro II, and his eventual successor, Pedro II, began seriously considering their political options. They had already granted some trade concessions to visiting Dutch merchants a decade or so before, to the very vocal protest and even violence of Portuguese locals. And now it was King Pedro II who wrote to the Dutch Estates General, offering not only an alliance against the Portuguese, but also ongoing trade concessions, subsidies and material support for them in Africa, if they would help them to get rid of the Portuguese. At the time, the Dutch government was in the process of planning an invasion of Portuguese holdings in Brazil, notably the lucrative sugar plantations of Bahia and Pernambuco. But when they received the proposal from the Congolese king, the scheme was rapidly extended to include a two-pronged attack, both in the eastern and western Atlantic. At the time, the majority of slaves exported to the New World were coming from Congo and Angola, so if they could cripple this market, it would choke off a substantial source of revenue for the Iberians. The Dutch agreed to the deal and dispatched an expeditionary force managed by the West India Company fleet. Meanwhile, the Portuguese governor of the Angolan colony of Luanda continued to up the ante by demanding the king be deposed and replaced by a candidate of his choosing. A bit rich considering that Portugal was itself the subject of Spanish kingmakers. He nevertheless managed to convince a contingent of Imbangala cannibal warriors that he first used to conquer Indongo and who had since gone over to Queen Injinga to defect back to the Portuguese side and together they headed straight for the Congolese capital. The initial skirmishes were successful and the cannibals were now let loose to loot and publicly feast on the bodies of their defeated enemies to the great horror of both the Congolese and the local Portuguese community, who were themselves unceremoniously stripped of their belongings and tortured. Church leaders all across Congo were outraged, and the pillaging of towns by the invaders actually served to cement the support of both local Portuguese settlers and Congolese citizens behind the king who painted the Angolan Portuguese marauders not only as traitors, but also unchristian, to have associated themselves with these cannibals and facilitated such awful desecration and plunder. The king, church leaders and Portuguese settlers all now wrote frenzied letters of protest to the Spanish royal court as well as to the Vatican, many of which are available online denouncing the governor's unholy actions and, to their credit, authorities in Europe acted immediately to remove him from office, imprisoning him where he soon died, while captured nobles were ordered to be released and many of those that had already been shipped off to Brazil 
were repatriated by 1625. Commoners, however, were not so lucky, and despite the king's protest that his citizens, especially women, were not to be sold as slaves, few of them made it back. All of this turmoil meant that Congo had, by now, had a serious gutful of Portuguese greed, and as his diplomatic proposals for alliance and support were making their way to Amsterdam, the king was simultaneously garnering support and extracting guarantees from his regional barons to launch a campaign to expel the Portuguese from Luanda once and for all. The Dutch were already scouting the African coast, and several engagements in the vicinity clearly put the Angolan colony on notice, and by 1624, 26 warships and over 3,000 soldiers made their way first to Brazil, taking the city of Salvador in days, and then dispatching five warships and about 500 soldiers to make their way across the Atlantic and link up with the smaller scout fleet already there. They were to join the secret Congolese campaign to capture Luanda. But as so often happens in war, the unexpected often spoils even the best laid plans. King Pedro very inconveniently expired, just as the Dutch ships were making their way into the harbour, and yet another succession crisis caused division and conflict among electing clans, which only served to distract them from the important task of war planning. To top it off, a neighbouring kingdom to the north chose this very opportune moment to flex its own military muscle and invaded a couple of border regions with mercenaries from the interior. All these factors served to paralyse the Congolese campaign. But the Dutch plan also rapidly unravelled. As the fleet approached Luanda, they were surprised by a massive artillery bombardment from the fortress that had been significantly upgraded in anticipation of their arrival. Frustrated, they headed to the main Congo port in the county of Soyo, where they were met with unexpected hostility by the local count, who refused to recognise the authenticity of the Dutch government's treaty ratification, nor would he allow these Protestants to march their army through his Catholic territory. This despite his being one of the signatories who had petitioned the Dutch in the first place. The frustrated Dutch now found themselves in a vulnerable impasse. It may be that the outcome of the current succession crisis had left the Count's own clan high and dry, so he was possibly withdrawing his support for the war altogether and just playing stupid. Nevertheless, as the Dutch withdrew and the entire alliance evaporated before it even began, the Count of Soyo nevertheless continued to allow Dutch traders to operate there, despite threats by the now emboldened Portuguese governor down south. The Count was trying to have his cake and eat it. Several Congolese monarchs now came and went in quick succession and as the factions continued their infighting, the Dutch, who had by now also lost their grip on the Catholic Brazilian colonies, 
decided instead to focus on privateering, plundering Spanish and Portuguese treasure fleets up and down both sides of the Atlantic, capturing the entire silver treasure fleet in 1628, and generally making a right nuisance of themselves. Nevertheless, by 1630, they took another crack at Brazil and wrestled Olinda, the capital of Pernambuco state, and then Recife from the Portuguese, and this time, with more generous governorship, they would hang on to them for some time, hemorrhaging the Iberians of much-needed cash. But the manpower burden of owning and running such a lucrative sugar region meant that they felt compelled to now themselves participate in the traffic of slaves. As they continued their raids up and down the African coast, in 1635, a Dutch fleet crossed paths with a large Spanish one sent to intercept them, which forced them to once again seek refuge back in the Congo port of Soyo. By now, the recalcitrant old count had been replaced by a more amenable one, with several kings having also come and gone in the meantime, in the usual merry-go-round of Congolese dynastic politics. But the new king, Alvaro VI, was still firmly anti-Protestant, and despite spending a couple of years under the new count's protection, the Dutch were forced to leave in 1640. But no sooner had they sailed away than the king's own brother wrote to the Dutch government offering both his support and an alliance against the Portuguese, should his brother the king, Alvaro VI, mysteriously and unfortunately fall off the perch, such that he, by the grace of God, be elected king in his stead, which, by some incredible coincidence, is exactly what happened the very next year. Once again, encouraged by the turn of events, the Dutch sent another massive expeditionary force, this time even bigger than the one they had sent to Brazil in 1623, and this time they headed straight for the Angolan colony in Luanda, taking it within days. The Portuguese had no choice but to retreat into the interior, as the Dutch extended their grip on other Portuguese outposts up and down the coast, taking Sao Tome, Elmina, and indeed the entire Portuguese gold and ivory coast by 1641. One of the reasons they succeeded so easily this time round was that Portugal was itself once again in complete turmoil. You see, after 60 years of being in a personal union with Spain, their treasury was near empty. They had been dragged into extensive wars on the European continent, Spain had prioritised the defence of its own colonial holdings over that of its little brother, and now the new king of Spain was actively seeking to reduce Portugal into merely a province of Spain. For many in the Portuguese court, this outrage was the final straw, and rebellion broke out in 1640 that saw Portuguese insurgents actively lobby other powers such as France and England for support and alliance against their Spanish masters. They had also been at war with the Dutch Republic for over 40 years, ever since their forced union with Spain, and even as negotiations began for a peace treaty, 
They had lost almost their entire lucrative Central West African holdings by 1641. The Dutch now concluded a comprehensive alliance with the Congolese king, Garcia II, who gave them free reign to build forts and manoeuvre across his territory as they saw fit, with the sole condition that no Protestant missionaries would ever be allowed to operate in Congo's strictly Catholic domains. Business was business, and the Dutch, more interested in commerce than preaching, were okay with that arrangement. They were soon joined in a triune alliance by Queen Njinga of Indongo, who, having been exiled from her lands, if you recall, by the Portuguese almost two decades before, was hardly the idle housewife of her parochial cannibal husband. She was busy raising yet more troops and overthrowing other small kingdoms in the neighbourhood, such as Matambo, and assuming the throne for herself. You go, girl. Queen Njinga was one tough lady, ruthless and Machiavellian, adapting her husband's highly militarised warrior culture to her own purposes, and she now raised yet another army, comprised of her own supporters, Imbangala battalions, escaped slaves and disenchanted Congolese, putting them through rigorous training exercises and inspiring a fanatical devotion to her. Having approached both the Dutch and the Congolese to do a deal, she felt certain she could regain her lost kingdom from the scattered Portuguese, who had entrenched themselves in the vicinity of her previous kingdom, following their own expulsion from Luanda. By 1642, both King Garcia of Congo and Queen Njinga of Indongo and Batamba now set about attacking Portuguese positions at the periphery of their domains. But news now arrived from Dutch West India Company headquarters that Portugal and the Netherlands had finally declared a ceasefire and were in the process of formalising a peace treaty, such that all hostilities against one another were to cease immediately, while the final territorial settlement was being worked out. The Dutch commander duly notified the disappointed Congolese king, who viewed the Dutch reversal as a betrayal, while at the same time purging the ranks of his own barons over the next three years and even attacking his own vassal county of Soyo, which ended not only in complete military failure, but also distracted him from focusing on the Portuguese, holed up in the interior on the fortified island of Masangano. We can only guess why, but it's likely it had something to do with regaining control of customs revenue. Poor old Queen Njinga, seeing both the Dutch and Congolese bail out of the action, decided that, as usual, it was up to a woman to sort out the mess the boys had gotten themselves into. So she went it alone and attacked the Portuguese with some Dutch troops in support, but was badly beaten in major battles during 1644 and 1646. The Dutch, despite their ceasefire, saw that Injinga's defeat would make them vulnerable 
and now sent a considerably larger detachment to serve under her command, as did King Garcia of Congo, when he finally recovered from his own humiliating defeats at the hands of his own subordinate. The fiery African Amazon once again went onto the offensive, her army now crushing the Portuguese at the Battle of Cumbi in 1647, and then once again at the Battle of Ilamba in 1648, going on to besiege every single fort that was left. Things were suddenly looking very grim indeed for the Portuguese, but just then, as though by miracle, a fleet arrived off Luanda, and a Portuguese amphibious assault completely overwhelmed the depleted Dutch garrison, and the fortress was taken almost without a shot being fired. It seemed the Portuguese were no suckers after all. Despite the ceasefire, everyone knew that possession was nine-tenths of the law, as they say, and they weren't about to let the prize of Luanda become a bargaining chip back home in Europe. In very short order, they not only expelled the Dutch entirely out of Central Africa, but they also liberated their other colonies of Sao Tome, Principe and much of the Gold Coast, particularly the gold mines of Elmina. Queen Injinga, frustrated, once again saw all her hard work evaporate into thin air. Without ongoing Dutch support, or that of her perpetually distracted Congolese ally, she knew her options were now limited, so she lifted her sieges and retired with her army back into her Matumban domains, leaving the idiots to sort out their problems for themselves. The Portuguese now, once again, pressed their demands upon the depleted Congolese kingdom. Taking possession of a key island, which produced the seashells that comprised the internal currency of the kingdom. You recall that while international trade had been long paid in slaves, internally the Congolese highly esteemed the local cowrie shell as a form of currency, which the Portuguese flooded into the country first from Southeast Asia and now by taking control of the marine ecosystem of the local source. This action devalued and crippled the king's ability to pressure his own vassals, and they now had a stranglehold on the entire Congolese economy and began to squeeze them hard. The next decade or so saw them exert political pressure on all the surrounding provinces, annexing some and vassalizing others, all at the expense of a shrinking Congo which remained paralysed by internal conflict. In 1663, King Afonso VI of Portugal now instructed his governors in Angola to punch deeper into the Congo and take possession of a lucrative copper mine. The current Congolese king, Antonio I, finally acted, first writing letters of protest to Europe and then pursuing an alliance with Spain against the Portuguese, much as his predecessors had done with the Dutch. The Spanish were in no mood for making the same mistake as the Netherlanders, and politely ignored his overtures. Besides, 
they were also out of cash and out of troops, owing to both the Thirty Years' War with the Holy Roman Empire as well as the ongoing Eighty Years' War with the Dutch Republic. So King Antonio had no choice but to go it alone and mobilised an army to intercept the Portuguese who were now on their way to pressure one of his southern duchies. The two armies met in the valley of the Ulanga River, just south of the capital of Imbuila in modern Angola, which at the time was a Congolese vassal state, but upon which the Portuguese had designs of their own. Antonio of Congo had almost 30,000 troops, including 15,000 archers, 5,000 heavy infantry with shields and swords, and almost 400 musketeers, including 29 local Portuguese gunners who were loyal to his cause. The Portuguese army was only half as strong, comprised largely of Brazilian conscripts, the usual Imbangala mercenaries, a regiment of 450 musketeers of his own, and two artillery pieces. The armies faced off in a narrow valley, removing any outflank advantage that Congo's numerical superiority might have afforded. The Portuguese army placed their musketeers in the centre, anchored by artillery, where they bore the brunt of the hail of arrows that opened hostilities. But the Portuguese centre held firm, and successive waves of infantry attacks failed to break them, with King Antonio, his two sons, and many Congolese nobles being killed in relentless futile attacks. When the king fell, Congolese morale collapsed, and the army was quickly routed from the field. Dozens of nobles were captured, including one Princess Aqualtune, about whom we know very little, except that she commanded an entire wing of the Congolese army. In the aftermath, most of them, including the princess, swiftly found themselves transported to the slave markets of Brazil, with many thousands ending up on local plantations. Congo, now without heirs and legitimate claimants, typically descended into civil war once again, this time lasting half a century, while Portugal went off to pick off one province after another. But when they attacked the Count of Soyo, they found him as ferocious as the King of Congo had, and this noble house on its own now faced off against the entire Portuguese army of Angola but which nevertheless thrashed them where everyone else had failed in the Battle of Kitombo in 1670, such that scarcely a Portuguese attacker was left alive to tell the tale. Though it should be said that Dutch traders had pitched in with muskets and artillery to help the locals out. The Portuguese army, now having been completely destroyed, were no longer in a position to molest either the remnant Congo state or the increasingly independent Counts of Soyo, who maintained their independence till the 19th century, though they failed to capitalise on their gains by advancing on the dwindling Portuguese garrison at Luanda. Queen Injinga's campaigning days were also more or less over 
and in the decades that followed, she encouraged missionaries to visit her kingdom, even having a lively correspondence with the Vatican and earning the praise of Pope Alexander VII in 1661 for her efforts in spreading the faith. She eventually made peace with the Portuguese in 1656, who made some territorial concessions to her, and she in return opened a slave market in her own capital, which now made her extremely wealthy. She maintained a foreign secretary from whom we get a rich history of her rule there. One notable example was the mention of her participation in combat displays during local festivals, even when she was well into her 80s. She boasted, even at this advanced age, that she could still take on five warriors at once, unless they had muskets. She hated muskets. Legend has it that she maintained her incredible strength by maintaining a harem of male lovers, who wore women's clothing while in her presence, but who would then have to fight, occasionally to the death, for the privilege of spending the night with her. If their conjugal performance was, shall we say, disappointing, they would lose their heads the very next morning. Talk about pressure. The other local Amazon we know about, Congolese Princess Aqualtune, if you recall, was sold into slavery along with hundreds of other prisoners of war and ended up in Brazil following the disastrous Battle of Imbuila in 1665. And this is where our story takes on another interesting turn. At the time, the Kingdom of Congo, and now increasingly the Portuguese colony at Luanda, were the major slave-trading hubs of West Africa, with the majority of captives being taken to Brazilian sugar plantations, some of which had been for some time in Dutch hands, but which had, after the 1650s, mostly reverted back to Portuguese control, partly through insurrection and partly through formal treaty negotiation. Given both the turbulent political situation as well as the mountainous forested interior, a large number of slaves frequently absconded into the uncharted bush. Sometimes they escaped individually and at other times in mass breakouts. These fugitives were known as maroons from the Spanish word cimarron, meaning feral or fugitive. Manpower to police and control the slave population was generally insufficient, with many thousands of fugitives, right from the late 16th century, clustering in spontaneous isolated communities known as mocambos throughout the Brazilian hinterland. Some joined up with displaced indigenous groups, while others found them to be hostile and went it alone. It should be said, though, that in 1570, almost a century prior, the unfortunately fated King Sebastião I of Portugal had actually issued a royal decree that all indigenous people in the Brazilian colonies were free subjects of the crown and were not to be either molested or enslaved, much as Queen Isabella of Spain had proclaimed when Columbus returned from his trip to Hispaniola in 1492. However, in both these cases, despite the magnanimous position of the crown, 
The loophole was that if Indigenous people attacked a settlement or failed to pay their dues to the governor, all bets were off, much as was the case in Spanish America, plantation owners, governors, soldiers of fortune and businessmen regularly fabricated claims of indigenous violence or actively incited it through displacing them by encroaching onto their lands. So it was easy enough to justify approval for their seizure and penal enslavement, such that indigenous slavery actually increased after 1570, despite these generous citizenship laws with only the occasional intervention from Europe to investigate abuses and punish corrupt local officials. Given their own sub-equatorial homelands, the heat, humidity and monsoon tropical diseases such as malaria and yellow fever were far better tolerated by Africans than their European overlords, so pursuing maroons into the interior was generally considered risky business though punitive expeditions were nevertheless regularly conducted. Male fugitives who were caught were typically executed, while women and children were simply re-enslaved. As time went on, maroon communities began to cluster and grow into sprawling townships called quilombos, derived from the Congolese word for a military encampment. The inhabitants of quilombos developed their own interior networks, defensive fortifications, agricultural lands, infrastructure and even government, typically comprised of a king, attended by a council that included both men and women, whose position was elected, not hereditary, much as was the case in central West Africa from whence they came. Quilombos would at times form war parties, raiding plantations for supplies and freeing other slaves, such that governors felt increasingly compelled to employ independent fortune hunters called banderantes to operate on their behalf and take on the more militant quilombos. But over time, the renegade communities also conducted a substantial trade enterprise with coastal settlements, whose inhabitants regularly lobbied governors to stop interfering with them because Quilombos were generally good for business. We know that Princess Aqualtuna ended up at the port of Recife, the main commercial hub in Brazil at the time, and we know she was sold to a sugar plantation nearby. She was reported as pregnant, though we have no details as to the father. It's probable that she already had children because one of her sons, later to become known as Ganga Zumba, was said to have been born before the Battle of Imbuila that saw her transported to the New World. Anyway, Princess Aqualtune and what children she already had managed to escape and made their way to a quilombo, some 90 kilometres inland, called Palmares. Accounts by members of a number of Portuguese punitive expeditions have given us rich details of the structure and organisation of quilombos, which, besides dwellings, also contained workshops, forges, schools, community halls, and even Christian chapels ministered by preachers who tended to their flock with a syncretised form of Catholic African Christianity, which banned witchcraft 
and any form of traditional sorcery. Marriages and baptisms were performed, though reports tell us that they were only loosely modelled along proper Catholic lines. Evidence suggests that the Quilombo of Palmares was populated substantially by Angolan and Congolese diaspora, and increasingly their locally born children. So it's not surprising that Aqualtune ended up here too, though we also have evidence of a vibrant, multi-ethnic, non-African proportion of inhabitants, including indigenous Amerindians and even white settlers, who had ended up on the wrong side of the law. Aqualtune was very likely recognised by the community for both her noble bloodline and leadership qualities, because by the early 1670s, her eldest son was already considered the King of Palmares, though little more is later recorded about his mother. Gangazumba was probably his title rather than his actual name, because in the Congolese language, Nganga Nzumbi was a title carried by all kings, as a suffix referring to their role as a protector against evil spirits. Since there are no records that indicate what his real name was, most contemporary writers use some variation of this title to refer to him. Now, Ganga Zumba had a palace, personal bodyguard, ministers, numerous wives, and he presided over a cluster of villages, as eventually did his brother, nephew, and sons in the now sprawling and self-sufficient network of Quilombos that had a population at their height possibly of 30,000 people. The Palmares community, growing in strength and seen as a continuous threat by both governors and plantation owners, found itself the subject of intensifying numbers of military expeditions against them, numbering at least once per year, almost all of them ending in complete failure as the Maroon spy network ensured they were usually ready for Banderantes incursions, either evacuating entire settlements before they got there, or otherwise picking off soldiers one by one as they trudged through the muddy, mountainous, forested terrain, where artillery and muskets afforded few advantages to the attackers. Some have estimated that the network of Quilombos centred around Palmares covered an area almost as large as Portugal, which would have made patrolling it very difficult indeed. Nevertheless, as the years went by, the authorities managed a few successful forays, with Gangazumba being wounded and a number of his kin being captured. In one such raid, his young nephew was apprehended and ended up in the service of a Franciscan monk who taught him to read and write and treated him kindly. But the teenager nevertheless absconded back to Palmares, where his sudden appearance, as if back from the dead, has led some scholars to believe he earned himself the nickname Zumbi, which has relation to the voodoo term Zombie. Now, Zumbi became a powerful leader in his own right, acting as war minister to his uncle. But as conflict with the authorities intensified, King Gangazumba 
sent a delegation to the governor in 1678 to negotiate a ceasefire and try to secure some kind of diplomatic solution. After tense negotiations, the governor of Pernambuco agreed to recognise Ganga Zumba as a sovereign ruler and to recognise his people as free citizens, granting them formal trading rights so long as they migrated their capital city from its current location to a valley further to the north. In addition, they were to cease raiding established plantations and agree to return any slaves that had escaped from that time on. The king agreed and began the exodus of his subject community to the designated location, but not everyone was happy with the agreement. His nephew Zumbi was particularly opposed to it, especially the agreement to return escaped slaves, which, to his mind, made them complicit in the ongoing misery of their people. Though records are murky, it appears that Zumbi and his fiercely independent wife, Dandara, had his uncle poisoned and now assumed not only the leadership of Palmares, but they also resumed the resistance against the Portuguese, earning legendary status among both their supporters and enemies for their valour and cunning in battle. Dandara was just another in a long line of tough African women who stood shoulder to shoulder with their men on the battlefield. Their resistance continued for another 16 years, as ferocious battles with increasing numbers of banderantes saw them repel one campaign after another. But in 1694, a renewed assault on the Palmarese capital of Macaco saw the defenders trapped behind their palisades, while the governor's army began erecting a palisade of their own around that one, besieging them in echoes of Julius Caesar's attack on Elysia in 52 BC. Low on ammunition and seeing no way out, the defenders stormed the Portuguese line, but were cut down by superior firepower, such that 500 defenders lost their lives, and that many more again were captured, including women and children. King Zumbi, though wounded, managed to escape, but his wife Dandara threw herself over a ravine, rather than surrender to a life of indignity, as did a number of other women. Palmares, referred to by some historians as the Black Troy of Brazil, finally fell, and though King Zumbi continued his insurgent activities for the next two years, records suggest he was eventually betrayed by one of his supporters, and he was ambushed and shot, his head paraded as a trophy back at the governor's mansion. Both King Zumbi and his uncle King Ganga Zumba have been mythologized and their identities have somewhat merged over the following centuries. They are now celebrated as national heroes among black Brazilians, while historians often refer to Zumbi especially as the Brazilian Spartacus. Back over in the Kingdom of Congo, the usual challenges of elective kingship 
continued to fracture the country, and despite its ongoing survival, it never regained the luster of its previous glory. While transportation to North America continued from African states further north, by 1839, under pressure by the British, the Portuguese government finally abolished their own participation in the slave trade, and commerce in the Congo Basin began to shift to the manufacture of rubber, peanuts, wax and ivory. But Portugal continued to play a prominent role in the country's politics, supporting some candidates and undermining others, such that by 1859, King Pedro V swore vassalage to Portugal, bringing the nation, for the first time in 400 years, under the complete jurisdiction of a foreign power. By the 1870s, the transatlantic slave trade had been all but eliminated by British naval patrols, who had at one time been its second biggest participant by volume after Portugal, and arguably some of its most cruel proponents, but who now, after 140 years of shame, had committed a significant portion of state revenue and naval resources in its elimination. Other European powers and the United States, as we well know, followed soon after, while the French Revolution inspired a number of colonial territories, such as Haiti, to rise up and fight for liberty. But the east coast of Africa continued the practice of slavery under the Arabs much as it had done for over a thousand years before, until here too the British Navy eventually put a stop to it by force in an 1897 ultimatum to the Sultan of Zanzibar. However, there was simultaneously an arms race going on that saw a renewed scramble for African resources by the major European powers, concluded at the Conference of Berlin in 1884, to their shame, carving up the continent between them and the central West African sphere of influence of the once mighty Kingdom of Congo was now divided up between Belgian, French, Portuguese, British and Spanish imperialist conglomerates, with Portugal still hanging on to the rump vassal state of the original kingdom. Nationalist uprisings and social unrest eventually saw Portugal formally dissolve the Kingdom of Congo in 1914. The wider territory remained subject to colonial governorship, with the whole new chapter of exploitation and tragedy, particularly in the region ruled by Belgium, which saw the deaths of millions of people under indescribably brutal conditions of servitude under Belgium's King Leopold II, a complete monster who made it his own private rubber empire, unaccountable even to his own parliament. Today, the Congo Basin is home to a number of independent republics. The Democratic Republic of Congo, largely comprised of post-Belgian colonial territory, achieving independence in 1960. The Republic of Congo just to its north, which was formally administered as a French colony, also achieving independence in 1960, and Angola, 
which largely retained a Portuguese political influence and achieved its full independence in 1975. All of these countries continue to grapple with the legacy of tribalism, slavery and European exploitation, plus the tragic blowback of 20th century revolutionary communism, vigorously sponsored by the Soviet Union. Today, the people of Central West Africa are emerging from this long and turbulent history with a renewed sense of pride and are taking their place in the family of nations, despite intermittent political instability and ongoing economic challenges. And it should be said, fresh international meddling by countries such as Russia and China. So what can we say about the Congolese people? and their interaction with Europe over the course of the last 500 years. It's clear that when Europeans first ventured south of the Sahara, they found well-established, sophisticated cultures, long used to international trade, diplomacy and politics. They, like the Europeans, had practised much the same systems of class distinction, military expansion and centralisation of authority, that characterised many other civilizations around the world. The Kingdom of Congo, in particular, quickly grasped the potential of advancing their political interests by adopting the customs, fashion, technology and even religion brought by the Portuguese, and successive monarchs showed incredibly progressive attitudes toward modernising their state, establishing embassies, corresponding widely and as equals with their European counterparts. Few Westerners today are aware of the numerous Congolese diplomats that resided in Lisbon, Madrid, the Vatican and elsewhere, not in the least bit intimidated by either popes or kings, where they now took an active role in pursuing alliances that suited their purpose, becoming perhaps the most well-known of the sub-Saharan kingdoms to 17th century Europeans. They, like many others in Africa, were a culture in which women not only played a key political but also military role, and their electoral system of kingship, though in some ways flawed, had the seeds of republican government at a time when much of Europe was ruled by absolute monarchies of extreme inequality and poverty for most. Something that's not widely known is that the kings of Congo, in their attempt to modernise, sponsored public literacy at a time when most ordinary Europeans could not themselves read or write. The depiction of sub-Saharan Africans as unsophisticated is a view that emerged in the 19th century rather than before this time and is largely the consequence of the propaganda of unrestrained capitalism and Victorian-era Protestant missionaries who viewed even Catholic Europeans as primitive. The history of slavery is laden with, among other things, significant irony. European Enlightenment-era human exploitation was, in some ways, more barbaric than that of the Renaissance preceding it, yet it gave rise to the very movement that for the first and only time in human history ended the entire practice. Slavery was also greatly facilitated by African monarchs, 
who benefited from conquering their neighbours, yet eventually themselves became its victims, as their societies fragmented and were eventually annexed by Europeans. For all our cultural differences, the people of the Kingdom of Congo, like indigenous groups everywhere, were in most respects pretty much the same as everyone else, looking out for their own interests, leveraging new technology and scheming against their own neighbours, participating in and eventually coming to suffer the consequences of globalised trade and conflict. Like so many other nations, they passed down the stories of their heroes, both men and women, who fought and died for freedom, often a long way from home, organising new societies in foreign lands and leaving us a rich account of the triumph of the human spirit and our common humanity that can perhaps serve to bring us all just that little bit closer together. If you enjoy this content, please take a moment to support my work by making a small donation through the links on the podcast website, or better still, by signing up as a Patreon supporter, where you can communicate with me directly, engage with the Heroes and Legends community, and get better insights and even involvement in my work and future videos. A video montage of this podcast also appears on our YouTube Heroes and Legends documentary channel. Please feel free to visit, like and share, and as always, thanks for listening.